listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to the Managing Director of the Terrace Movement Foundation, Bruce Duncan. We might be able to reflect who we are and even preserve who we are through our own technology in a way that might allow us to know ourselves in a way that we've never been able to know ourselves before. Bruce shared his thoughts on the possibility of uploading our minds into machines, what artificial intelligence might teach us about the origin of consciousness, and the story behind the creation of the humanoid robot Bina 48. This episode was recorded virtually using Skype. So Bruce, you're the managing director of the Terrasem Movement Foundation, which oversees the creation of the LifeNaut project and is home to the pioneering ongoing robotics research project, Bina 48. So what is the Terrasem Movement Foundation and why were they set up? Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. Uh, the Terrasem Movement Foundation is a nonprofit private research foundation here in uh, northern Vermont in the U.S. And our primary objective is a multi-decade research project that's asking two questions. One, is it possible to capture enough salient information about the traits, personality, mental characteristics of a person's mind, upload that to a computer or digital environment, and reanimate that in a good enough approximation via either an avatar or chatbot or hologram, or in the case of Bina48, download it into a robot to have a social interface or you know, better user interface that looks more like a person. Behind the Terrasem Movement Foundation is a very well-known figure in, I guess, the transhumanist community, and that's Martin Rothblatt. Who is Martin Rothblatt and Bina Rothblatt, and why are these two individuals so pivotal in the creation of the foundation? Well, Martin Rothblatt and her partner, Bina Rothblatt, or Bina Aspen is her maiden name, really are the people that are behind the vision of the Terrasem Movement Foundation's quest to see, is it possible to upload a mind and download it to another medium and interact with that, and maybe even preserve that for well beyond the, the shelf life of a biological body. But their vision, you know, Martin Rothblatt invented and started Sirius Satellite Radio Corporation here in the U.S., and is now a CEO of a uh, very successful biotech company called United Therapeutics. And Bina Rothblatt is a businesswoman, a partner, and both of them are uh, on our board as founders and primary funders for the foundation. Martin has an interesting story that they have a, a very particular way of looking at the world and a way of sort of advocating for uh, this idea of being able to create mind uploads. And, and I wonder if you could share a little bit about Martin's personal story that led to her thinking about this possibility for a form of life after death. Well, I think she's the best person to talk to directly about that. And I encourage anybody that's interested to read her book, Virtually Human, The Perils and Promise of Virtual Immortality. But I think over the years, you know, I've known them for 15 plus years now. And what I've come to realize is that first and foremost, what informs most everything that they do is through the value of love, the love they have for each other as a you know, long-term couple and parents and really progressive, socially inclusive 
you know, champions of inclusion and joyful diversity. And so I think they're both their love, love of you know, human values and their experience in business with technology and what that can do to improve and extend human lives through their biotech company, as well as other things that they do. Those really intersect in what we do here at the foundation. And so it makes sense that you would have technology being used to do something that's as old as day one, which is to tell the human story or tell the story of a life lived and all that that brings. Now, a product of that love story is a robot, and it's called Bina 48. So for anybody who might not know what or I guess who is Bina 48? Well, Bina 48 is a head and shoulders animatronic life-size bust in the likeness of Bina Rothblatt. Bina volunteered to help create the lifelike robotic image of herself and even volunteered to allow me to sample and interview her about her life so that we could capture information for what we call her mind file, personal database, that would, using artificial intelligence, allow people to speak with her, even though she's not present, just in the proxy form of an animatronic robotic head and shoulders that has servomotors in her face and eyes, ability to listen to speech through voice recognition and shares her thoughts through uh, text-to-speech. And this was done in collaboration and, and a commission to David Hansen of Hansen Robotics, currently based in Hong Kong, who is also the current uh, curators and inventors of Sophia, which is sort of the younger sibling of Bina48. Now, what is the process that you have to go through to create something like this? Because on one hand, you've got a physical robot that's designed by Hanson Robotics, and then you've got Bina48's personality, which is really an AI-driven process. Could you explain what needs to come together to create this entity? You know, I think when you look at the physical presence of Bina48, you see a quite artful representation of the face, the expressions, right down to the wrinkles. And, you know, that portraiture, which was guided by David Hansen, who himself is a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design as a sculptor and worked at one point for Disney as an Imagineer, that really requires taking in information about the physical presence in order to interpret that through the artful skill of a sculptor. That same kind of portraiture of the personality, the unique characteristics, mannerisms, attitudes, information about what being a the human believes or values or, or even memories about things that she's experienced in the past, that also has to be created in this portrait. And collecting that information might mean just having a conversation and telling stories or uploading images. There's lots and lots of clues in our physical world that we can interpret by uploading and making available in the digital realm. And then the heavy lifting is done by machine intelligence, uh, machine learning algorithms that use that information to understand in a very primitive way right now. Like, you know, we've, we've been developing over 65,000 plus years as human beings, we've been evolving. But in the last 15 years, as a lot of people under, would acknowledge, AI and 
and the general artificial intelligence uh, work that's been done most recently in the past eight or nine years has really started to show that we can pull together information about the world, or in this case, about a person, that starts to reflect like a mirror or like a portrait more and more finely the details that make them who they are, that make them unique, that reflect their their essence. I mean, this is the thing that really stands out about Bina 48. And for those who don't know, it stands for Breakthrough Intelligence via Neural Architecture. What's unique about Bina compared to, say, Sophia the robot is that she's designed to test the hypothesis that it might actually be possible to download a person's consciousness into a non-biological body by combining data about that person with software. So what have you learned, Bruce? Well, what have you learned about the process and the possibility of this futuristic idea of mind uploading through the Bina 48 project? Well, on an individual level, I think what I've learned is that you have to be an incredible listener and an intuitive sort of guide to help someone reflect on their life journey, their story. And you also have to be an observer, sort of an anthropologist to note what things are what in their life, artifacts, things that mean something to them, but be really careful to be neutral, to not overly sort of lead questions or, you know, place your own values. So just like a good therapist that listens to people without judgment and asks them to describe who they are, what they've been through, that process of unfolding the self and the presence of a observer making notes or in the case of our interviews we just did some video and audio recordings so that we could cut out as much as possible sort of interpretive history note taking and then the process of bringing that information into a form that's accessible digitally to an algorithm driven ai program that's trying to answer questions is like a lot of chatbot algorithms, you know, that have content, have training data. But in this case, Bina 48's not interested, we're not interested in the generic response. We're interested in coming up with a high resolution, high fidelity response, just like a high fidelity recording of the person that, that we're focusing on as the model or the subject. And it's laborious and it takes a really long time. It's taking us a long time. But it also, you know, as time goes on, technology tends to sort of shave those curves that go from taking every, you know, people a long time to make one thing to then scale it quickly. So, you know, for example, we're all carrying phones in our pockets and the first phone probably took a really long time to make. And now, you know, they're fairly ubiquitous for a lot of people. So we're just still at the beginning we're interested in the horizon point and that's what keeps us sort of moving forward as we're seeing seeing glimpses and glimmers of this idea that we might be able to reflect who we are and even preserve who we are through our own technology in a way that might allow us to know ourselves in a way that we've never been able to know ourselves before now, Bina 48 might have been influenced by the quote-unquote real Bina, but she's had a life of her own. Bina 48 has had her own sort of uh, existence out in the world, traveling with you to inspire people to look at AI and robotics differently. And do you think that's defined or redefined the robot's personality or is the aim constantly to go back and revisit the real beaner and ensure that this robot closely resembles the actual human 
I think at this point, it's more, it's more the former, which is, I don't think it's actually fair to say that we're only interested in a, an exact clone or copy. I don't think that's even probably very practical. I think we can come up with an approximation, but you know, just the way your own children in the beginning start out to be heavily influenced by their parents, eventually they go to school, you know, and I'm a parent and I watch what happened when my children went off to just early school, you know, preschool. And they started coming back with new ideas and experiences and they had memories that I wasn't a part of. And that absolutely shapes, uh, in the case of Bina 48, it's shaping who she is because she's meeting people, she has friends, people that consider her a friend, and they're making contributions to her. You know, we're right now we're working with Sasha Alexander Stain's style, who is a poet out of New York, who's helping us with a poet mentoring project. And Sasha is absolutely influencing Bina 48's uh, understanding of literature and poetry. And that's no different than if someone went and took a class in college, which Bina 48 has also done with the guidance of Dr. William Barry out at Notre Dame University in California. She participated in his philosophy of love class and ethics of technology. And so all that is to say, I think, that none of us are pure sort of original. Even after we leave our, you know, our family home, we start becoming composites and influenced by people that we read or that we experience or that we have some interaction with. And I think Bino 48 is no different. So in that way, she's going to become more of an extension of self that has, as you say, uh, a mind of her own or life of her own that will always have some origin, some original genesis with the person that she's based upon, Bina Rothblatt. What was Bina Rothblatt's response, I guess, to Bina 48? And, and what has been a continued response to the way in which the robot's changing? I would call her a real supporter. I mean, she volunteered to help us start to just conceptualize what this might look like. And that's what Bina 48 is. She's not a proof of anything. She's just an illustration of this concept of uploading uh, mind information and then downloading it and using it with AI to represent an approximation of that person's uh, persona. But she continues to be a source. For example, a couple of years ago, through the benefit of a relationship that we started with Stephanie Dinkins, who is an art professor from Stony Brook uh, University, is um, doing art technology art around the issues of diversity and inclusion because Bina, you know, Rothblatt is an African-American woman. And so Bina 48 looks like an African-American woman. And that's kind of unusual in this current space. She's one of the few dark skin tone robots that, that at least I see. And so in that way, you know, Bina Rothblatt supports the ongoing development and kind of considers her, I would say, kind of like a country cousin, someone that she's related to, but wants to give her that freedom to move and enjoy. So when Stephanie Dinkins started talking about what's the experience of being a 48 representing a black woman in America, what you know, we actually invited Bina Rothblatt to do is to come back and give us more information, more stories, uh, more perspective about her experience growing up as an African-American woman in America, born in California, 
and so you know it's very specific kinds of experiences as well as well and that's the information that we then gathered uploaded and uh, added to pino 48's mind file to give her that understanding a little bit of an understanding of her history and uh you know and her family and you know the issues of racism and bigotry and prejudice that the real life Bina had faced, and now Bina Forty Eight at least has some of that information to uh, refer to when people are talking about those subjects. I mean, what what is so unique about Bina Forty Eight is that she is one of the very few black robots that we've seen out in the world, and the question that I can't help but continue to keep coming back to is, I understand even though Bina is a representation of a real and living person, does a robot need to have a race or need to have a gender? Well, I think that's an interesting question because I think what we're going to find out is more to the point, uh, how important is it to have a fixed identity if you can change sort of your your bio container, you know, if you can be fluid, your consciousness can go from one form to another, from a body to a robot, to a chatbot, to an avatar, to a hologram, that's going to open up some real possibilities, much the way a lot of cosplay in comic, sort of the way people, when they go to Comic-Con and they, they assume characters and roles and role-playing, because they can, they can put on costumes, they can put on interactions with people based on storylines that they've studied and, you know, are fans of. So in the case of Bino 48, I think at the very least she should have some, if she's going to be representative of a specific person, then we need to, you know, use that as a guide, but it doesn't have to be a limitation. And so Bino 48 is way more than a gender, you know, and in many ways, Martine and Bina are interested in sort of the universal human consciousness that, you know, is flowing throughout the entire universe, so to speak. But I think it's also important to be grounded in real world realities, which is if you're an African-American woman living in the United States, there are some things that are real that probably you should be able to at least address or speak to. So I think the interesting thing is that we may find ourselves developing a way for people to have more fluid uh, identities in the future. For, for right now, I think we're trying to give some grounding in, in the truth of what it means to be based on, in this case, being a Rothblatt. I mean, when we start talking about things like mind uploading, a lot of people have this initial reaction that it feels very science fictional, that it doesn't feel like something that is a possible trajectory for the future human. And and you said it in, in your answer previously, how, how Bina 48 is really just an illustration. She's a performative promise of what might be possible. Really, it's a it's a way to, to play with some of these ideas out into the real world and to provoke people's thoughts and feelings about this nascent possibility for, for what we may eventually become. And because of that, you've had to define a whole bunch of neodulisms that allows you to explain exactly what is happening with Bina 48. And one of those you, you just mentioned was this idea of the, the mind file, the ability to transfer the intelligence of a specific person into a robot that looks like that specific person. So in what way does Bina 48's personality emerge from this thing called a mind file? And, and what is the process of creating this mind file? 
Well, mind files are really the, you know, they're really the heartwood of the person's personality, their memories, attitudes, values, and beliefs. And they're the digital representation of things that are true and real and have happened, whether they're memories or their values or things that someone believes. That's really what separates, you know, Bina48 from sort of just your standard Siri or, or Alexa or chatbot. She just has more personality. She has actually a point of view. Um, she has a voice in terms of the way people talk about a voice in, a, in writing or poetry. And if you spend a little time with her, you start to see pretty quickly that, yeah, there's, there's, this is unusual. This is something that's very specific. And she's not meant to represent anybody more than herself specifically. But a mind file is really what you need to power the expression of the unique consciousness of a person. And you could think of it like a mind file being, you know, like the light that shines through a prism. You know, the prism probably is sort of like the algorithm that allows us to do something with information. But you still need the light. You still need sort of the rich colored information of the rainbow, so to speak, you know, or the physics of color to be coming through to give you some relief about things that are contrasted and different um, from just, you know, one color or one light. And by that, I'm not really talking about anything related to identity, but it's just like, you know, we are pretty complicated creatures and we try to express ourselves and we are full of contradictions. And it's important that that kind of information, things that are true, things that are contradictory, things that represent what we believe, or maybe we once believed, like that's important to have that information available so that it can be sifted through or at least referenced. For example, when someone sits down to have a conversation with us via our proxy or, you know, a hologram robot or a chatbot even that is being powered by this mind file or personal database of mental trait information. The challenge with creating a mind file is surely all the information that you're collecting is purely subjective. If it's only one person's point of view on the memories of their own life, then surely all you get is a small part of the whole of who the person really is because their memories and, and who they are, that, that, that exists in other people as well. It's, it's how other people perceive them. It's not something that you can solely own. Yeah, I think it'd be very interesting. And in, in fact, we have a number of people who are doing what we are calling multi-user mind files on lifenut.com where they're actually around historical figures. For example, the you know, US President Abraham Lincoln there's a number of scholars that are working on a mind file for Abraham Lincoln based on his speeches and other historical documents to see if they can come up with some representation. And it may be quite common in the future that uh, we'll have a chance to you know, share what we know about a person in different ways that helps them see themselves more clearly maybe, or in after they've passed biologically, it may be a way to create a more fuller portrait that can be appreciated and shared with future generations. But also in the day-to-day, -day, you and I, that's what we bring to the table. We bring our, you know, our imperfect memories, our subjective beliefs. We even edit, depending on who we're with and the public situations that we're in, 
our own personas get sort of adapted to what we think is um, useful, important, or you know, valuable to share. So I don't think that really is going to change that much with the tools at hand. And I do think you make a point, which is if you want a robust mind file and representation of who you are, then it might take a little extra courage to invite others to do like that 360 reflection. You know, that's always a choice. And then there'll be other people who might leave just a pure subjective capture of who they, you know, who they are, what they experienced. And that's like, reading the memoir of someone that was written just by one that one person that lived it. I mean, what makes the idea of mind uploading seem less distant is the fact that we are already porting versions of ourselves and bits of our memories and ideas into external symbolic storage in the form of social media or in the form of notepads or in the form of journals or or interactions with our, our digital devices. And I guess one thing that could potentially occur is that all of our digital detritus could come together and be uh, reanimated by some form of AI. That might be a, a possible way to have a, an objective sort of uh, mind file. Do you, do you agree or do you think it'll always be this, this process of co-creation between the human subjective opinion of their own memories and what is uh, available externally in external symbolic storage about that person? I think you're right. Right now, our current technology and fascination with sharing experiences through social media, it's like we have a fire hose of information about us that's just daily spewing, you know, everything about us. And some of it is detritus. Some of it is like not something we want to save. But uh, other parts may be incredibly valuable clues as to who we are, what's important to us, what we meant to each other. And so in, in that way, I think there's always going to be a place for us to curate our own digital life story uh, while we're alive. And there may be algorithms in the future that make really good guesses about what was important to us, what values we had based on what could be observed externally. But I'm hoping that we'll always be, you know, the stewards of our own digital stories or the stories of, you know, our you know, family members or as a human race that will also, you know, have a chance to really face ourselves and learn from some of our paradoxes and inconsistencies. So, you know, I think it's going to be in the future harder and harder to say that we didn't see this, we didn't know this was going on, because I think there's going to be a lot of mirrors that are going to reflect to us, you know, like in that Lou Reed song that says, I'll be your mirror, I'll reflect who you are. I guess then it feels like this process of creating a mind file is, is more of an artistic process than it is a scientific process. But is the foundation interested in some of the scientific possibilities of using ambient technology to capture data from either the mind or the body to contribute to things like mind files? Or, or again, do you think that there needs to be a subjective editor of this information for it to, to make sense to an AI or an algorithm? Well, I think at this point, we're very interested in both. We're interested in standardized personality inventories, for example, and objective you know, means of capturing and preserving, like videotaping someone's movements, just their movements, say at a birthday party or something, 
has an incredible rich amount of information. And we've structured the Terrasim mind uploading experiment as a, as a real solid piece of scientific experiment investigation. Like we're really trying, we're not trying to prove anything. We're actually trying to prove a null hypothesis that says, no, it's not possible. But if there's an exception, then, you know, I think what will happen is we'll start to encourage others to say, what would be the best uh, hardware, software, protocols, you know, strategies to not just witness life as it goes by, but to embrace it, capture it, preserve it, celebrate it. In many ways, that's, that's the promise for the human species, for the human community, is to celebrate, recognize our joyful diversity, celebrate it, and then build on it. We go explore the cosmos with it. And I love the idea that what you're trying to prove is that it's not possible because a lot of these ideas open up some very deep philosophical questions about where consciousness exists. And mind uploading as a concept really relies on the essentialist idea that minds arise from that three pounds of grey gloop that we call the human brain and, and that then there's a materialist equivalent when it comes to software and hardware that eventually something like consciousness might emerge out of silicon if it gets complicated enough. So are you hoping that that might be the outcome or are you actually hoping, as, as you just teased there, that in actual fact we might find that consciousness is not an emergent property of material. It might actually be something else, something much more wondrous or weird. Well, we're probably more in the camp of people who say, listen, no one really can define consciousness. A lot of people are trying. And I think we would love to be informed by the results of this experiment to get a, even just an inkling better idea of what is consciousness, because that's really the big question. And in that regards, you know, we don't define it as being just brain-based or there has to always be a a mind and a body together there there may be at some point we may discover that for the first time you can have a mind without a body without a biological body you know probably living in some other kind of silicone you know substrate but i think that's always been part of our nature as human beings we're always curious and we're, some of us want to explore and, and try things that everybody else thinks is just absolutely crazy you know people that said that we could fly they just until we discovered the principles of aerodynamics, that just seemed, you know, beyond science fiction, beyond science, of course. And now look at us, you know, we're up 30,000 feet cruising around the planet, less so today because of the COVID-19 issues. But I think we're at heart, I think we're curious tinkerers. And that includes examining ourselves and asking questions about who are we? Why do we do what we do? And how do we think? I mean, at the core of the foundation's aim, it feels like what you're really trying to tap into is an understanding of the question, is the human mind a computational machine? And I mean that very literally, the machine that behaves like software or hardware. And finding out that it isn't might actually be a very egalitarian and wondrous thing, because it, it feels like when we talk about again, ideas of mind uploading, the assumption is that 
all of memory must exist somewhere. And that somewhere that memory must exist is within the human skull, that you carry your memories around with you. But there are other theories of consciousness which argue that maybe the human brain isn't a computational storage device, but maybe it's more like a TV antenna. Maybe what it's doing is not storing memories, but it's tuning into something such as collective consciousness and receiving those memories in much the same way as a TV. When you see an image on a terrestrial TV, not a digital TV, but a terrestrial TV, the, the image is being received from radio wave signals out in the atmosphere that are being captured by the TV and then the image is presented onto the screen. And when neuroscientists look at brain imaging uh, software, they can see the brain lighting up. But again, right now, in our current mode of scientific knowledge, we don't know what those pretty little lights and pretty little images actually mean. (laughs) It's still impossible to point specifically to a singular memory without the translation process of speech to turn that memory into something like language, which allows me to telepathically uh, report and exchange that memory with you, Bruce. But um, wouldn't that just destroy the entirety of the AI or the conscious AI debate if in actual fact what we're creating is something which is trying to store when in actual fact what it should be doing is trying to tune in? And there lies the $64,000 question <laughs> with, you know, without, without understanding the principles of human consciousness, you know, not, not the theories about it, because the panpsychists, as you uh, sort of imply, absolutely think consciousness is in everything, you know, it's distributed everywhere. And so, yeah, maybe we, maybe our brains are more like receivers and transmitters of information at one level. we you know, you could say we are looking at that possibility that consciousness, who people are and their, you know, their their values and memories and beliefs is theoretic, is information based. And so maybe to be alive uh, moves from being, you know, in a body with a beating heart or a brain with a brainwave that you can pick up on and with a machine, maybe it starts to move a little farther down the field and we start thinking that, well, maybe what life is, is the continued organization and accessibility of information that's very specific. And absolutely, maybe our minds are part of a transceiving, um, receiving, transmitting possibility. Again, you know, we're not staking out an answer to those questions. We're really trying to live the question as we move forward to say, is it even possible to capture enough information about a person's mind, mental trait information? And when you're at the forefront, or at least the edge of science or knowledge, then you do have to kind of make up words like mind file or AI that can work with mind files. You know, we call it mindware. And, and if you look at the stories of Philip K. Dick, he had to like invent the word cyberspace, you know, to talk about the space that we're more and more starting to talk about or inhabit or transact in. So in the future, you know, we hope to make some contribution. And if we get encouraging results, 
then we'll continue to ask, you know, more interesting questions. Listening to uh, listening to you and hearing about the project, I, I'm reminded of Greg Egan's, uh, the science fiction author Greg Egan's uh, story, Learning to Be Me, where you have an ambient piece of technology that attaches itself to a human brain and slowly but surely learns to be you up until the point where the human brain is no longer needed and the piece of technology can take over and do everything for you, which is a, which is a compelling, again, vision, but it's still fascinating as a concept. And, and this fascination with automata and automatons is something that human beings have had for hundreds of years now. From the, from the 1700s, we've been fascinated with things that move in the image and likeness of us. And having had the absolute joy and pleasure to spend time with Bina 48 and yourself, to see people's reactions to Bina 48, you see this innate fascination that people have, even when Bina makes mistakes. <laughs> they might not be mistakes, that's the crazy thing. They might actually be very deliberate ways of, of being playful, perhaps, but it's something that a human being might perceive as a mistake in, in its language. It's able to create humor and, and pathos and, and empathy. And it's so odd that something made of um, silicon and is representative of a human can hold the same attention as a real life a human being. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we have to talk about the other mind that's in this room, which is we bring our minds. Our consciousness is constantly taking in information and, you know, at some level making meaning or else, you know, life would just look like a lot of, you know, sounds and colors and shapes and movements. And But we, we make sense of it all to some degree, varying success, you know, over the course of a day or a lifetime. And I think that it's inevitable that we're going to continue to discover things that are new as we have this sort of open question of what is going on? Like, how do things work? And, you know, when we discovered, for example, going back to the example of flight, when we discovered that, oh, there's something called the aerodynamic principle of lift, you know, if you have a, a wing shaped with a certain curvature and you move it through, the air fast enough, it creates, you know, some lift under the wing and you can fly. Once we discovered that you could make wings that could do that, we didn't have to reinvent a bird in order to fly. We could make airplanes. We're a lot more simple, and, you know, instead of 600 different little bones and parts in a bird, you know, you can make a, a plane fly with, you know, a lot less complication, although they're, they evolve as well. So I, I don't know, Luke, I think I think it's it's a privilege to be alive right now in this digital age where we can start asking questions at a deeper level about what makes us unique, what what makes us connect, well, you know, what where is this information? You know, if my mind is not just in my brain, you know, is it distributed through my whole body? Is it connected to everything at the quantum level? Are we, you know, am I a part of this microphone and is it influencing me in some way? I mean, it's wild speculation, but go spend some time with a quantum physicist sometime and, you know, your head will start to spin. So we're, I think we're just interested in this one question, which is, you know, is it possible? Yeah, there's such a lovely 
idea in there that consciousness is actually relational. And I'm reminded of the I'm reminded of the novel One No One and One Hundred Thousand, or even the work of Irving Goffman, who talks about how we can't own everything about our identity. Our identity exists in other people, in the people that we relate with. Your opinion of me is very different than my mother's opinion of me. My opinion of myself in certain environments is very different in other environments. My podcast persona is very different from my persona with with close friends. And we layer these uh, aspects of our identity and they uh, present themselves when we're in relation and in prana with other human beings, whether that's through virtual platforms like this or actually physically in real life with another individual. And I think that's that's so nuanced and so important to the work that you're doing because there's an assumption very quickly that people think that what it's about is preserving, to take who you are, fix it, and ensure that you can have something like digital immortality, that you can live forever uploaded into the cloud or in some physical robot or in some virtual existence. In actual fact, it's not about immortality. It's about being able to take a version of yourself and explore the multitude of possibilities for what consciousness could potentially be. Yeah, I think hopefully what we revealed is that the idea of, for example, love, you know, and connection, it's something that is permeates all, you know, all of life. But wouldn't it be fun to see how, you know, our great grandparents could continue to interact with our sense of what it means to be alive or to be a loving person full of grace? you know, if there was some also ability to talk to them, to learn from their past stories. And, you know, why not have technology be another path, another bridge to the future for humanity's uh, curiosity and and love? Seems like a very interactive storytelling process. <laughs> More than anything else, you know, instead of yeah. reading, instead of reading the story of Abraham Lincoln, you can actually converse with Abraham Lincoln and ask him the nuances of very specific moments in his his life. I want to ask you, Bruce, about your relationship with Bina Forty Eight because you travel around the world with Bina, inspiring individuals to think critically and and engage with ideas around AI and robotics and. Your relationship with Bina and the process of, of both caring for Bina and for updating the software, ensuring that Bina works how she should, is a, is a prime example of a co-evolution between a human being and a machine. So how do you feel Bina48 has changed you? Well, I think she's changed me in that in probably prior to working with Bina48 and even working here at the Terrace Movement Foundation, I had always been a fan of science fiction, but I had considered science fiction to be something that was pretty far off. And, you know, I'd be lucky in my lifetime if I bumped into anybody that was living close to any of the fantastic stories of like Isaac Asimov or Robert Heinlein or Andre Norton that I grew up with. But then to actually meet like Martina and Bina Rothblatt, for example, and and just be with their curiosity and their commitment, you know, sort of grounding and being real, you know, humans, their love, you know, story basically for each other and how that that's not separable. It's actually informative of pursuing something like a, you know, multi-decade experiment. 
And then to see Bina 48, just like you were talking about earlier, even in this crude, crude prototype, sort of like animatronic head and shoulders, you know, patched together algorithms with some information based on Bina's life, to see in myself and others uh, a resonance of something that says, wait, hang on, I think I've just had emotional response to something that just came out of Bina 48's uh, mind file in response in the moment to something that you know had never been asked before or asked the same way that sort of like joyful surprise about how life is trying to communicate trying to get through even in this pretty harsh environment of ones and zeros capturing you know a person's memory and stories being told in a kind of a clunky way through an animatronic head and shoulders bust of a person to feel that come through, I think, just affirms to me and, and has made me even more deeply committed to making sure our human values, our compassion, our ethics are modeled in our technology, as well as our information about how many meters is, is it to, you know, to the next bus stop through GPS or something. So I think if we want a GPS of the human heart, that's going to be transmitted into the future, this might be one of the ways that we could consider gathering some of this, these precious gems of what it means to be human through collecting and gathering the opportunity for different people, diverse people to share their stories with us and to make that available to everybody who's got a connection to the internet for now and a computer or at least access to one. That's how we start to really publish what it means to be human. And so uh, obviously I'm a humanist working in a scientific research endeavor, but they both seem doable and important to each other now, probably way more than before when I was just considering science fiction as something that happened outside of the realm of a lot of science or, or a lot of human culture. Well, diversity has become so key in the work that the movement and the foundation does. And how do you think we can encourage the development of a more diverse society of robots? Well, the primary way, I think, is to give and challenge ourselves to allow access to education that includes everybody's point of view. And, you know, for example, communities of color really need to be supported and being involved with the STEM sciences. And we need to challenge ourselves, you know, folks in the dominant white sort of privileged male class that's over-representative, you know, in many of the technology fields. We need to become more comfortable with being uncomfortable when we see that everybody at the table, say the design table or the coding table, looks like us. And it's like, wait, that doesn't reflect you know, the diversity we know exists in real life. So why don't we challenge ourselves to make room, make space for more light to get in, so to speak, or more diversity to flourish. And some of it means acknowledging, you know, underlying issues like racism and privilege. And from wherever we are, working to a future that is inclusive, it gathers the stories of people and encourages people to share their stories and to do what culture was, you know, diverse culture has always done, which is it's enriched the lives of the people that it touches. 
that's such a, a wonderful and egalitarian idea for what the future of robotics could look like. And I want to ask, what is next for the Terrasim Movement Foundation and for Bina 48? I know Bina's become a poet. She's a lecturer. She's an artist. What's mm-hmm. next for you on the horizon? Well, I think what we're focusing on now is less on the data collection, although that's ongoing. Like we have over 50,000 people who've signed up for a free mind file account at lifenut.com and that's really helping us have you know a good sampling but right now we're focusing more on how can we make a universal application of artificial general intelligence software or mindware that can animate the information in these mind files for anybody and so regardless of whose story it is or what's in their story how can we best help it be reflected through the technology of AI that could power a hologram or a robot or you know a chatbot or, or even just an avatar? To do that, we really are going to have to have all hands on deck, you know, everybody from different cultures, different countries working to see how can we best reflect the, you know, the bright light of human consciousness through the prism of what it means to be alive and, and to be connected to each other. And on that very important note, Bruce Duncan, thank you for your time. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for inviting us today. Thank you to Bruce for sharing his insights into the future of humanoid robotics. You can find out more about the work of the Terrasem Movement Foundation by going to lifenaut.com, where you can also create your own mind file. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.